Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 35 through verses 44 this morning. I want us to look into the aspect of giving sacrificially and what it means to give sacrificially in light of the gospel this morning. What does it mean to give, number one, charitably, and number two, to give sacrificially? I remember reading of a story of an, old, an older gentleman who happened to be a... Uh, he, he had to have a lot of wealth. And he was prominent in the community uh, for having a lot of materialistic things. And there was a young and vibrant and advantageous chairman of a charitable ministry who decided one day he's going to go out in the, in the, in the community and go door to door to ask for funds, for donations, for the charitable association. So he goes through his record book and he finds the elderly gentleman that has a lot of wealth. And he decides he's going to go up to his house because he has no record whatsoever of any of the man's contributions of any of the time that he has been on board as a director and past. So he goes up to the man's house and he knocks on the door. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I have I noticed that you haven't given anything to our charitable association in many, many years. In fact, I don't see anything here that would indicate that you have ever given. And based on your wealth, don't you think it's about time you give a little bit? I checked my record book and I don't see any anything at all. And that older gentleman, he just sat there and he scratched his chin and he said, Well, let me ask you this, Sonny. Does your record book show that I have a, a mother who has... We just lost her husband. I just lost my father. And I'm trying to give to her and to minister to her or to see that she uh, makes ends meet? He says, No. He says, well, let's take this a step further. I have a brother who is homeless pretty much, struggling, trying to get disability, living from check to check. Does your record show that? No, they don't, sir. He says, well, does your record book show that I have a sister who had just recently got a divorce and has been struggling to make ends meet with four children. Oh no, sir, he says, it doesn't show that at all. Kind of embarrassed at this point. So of course the man is going to help his mother. Sure. But he says to the man, if I have not given to my sister... And if I have not given to my brother, what makes you think that I'm going to give to you? All this wealth 
and didn't want to even budge on helping his, his family. Much less help a charitable donation association as such. And although this is in the case of charitable associations, if we do recall the church is a charitable association to a degree, but the lesson is still the same. And it raises some interesting questions for us today. As a body of believers, I want to ask us a question. And when I say us, I mean myself included. This morning I want to ask one simple question. And hopefully we can begin to reflect on this through the duration of this message. And the question is this. What does it mean? What does it really mean to give sacrificially? What does it really mean to give sacrificially? Now before you get into the mindset of thinking that this is monetarily, this is so much more than just monetarily. But our example today just happens to be on the aspect of giving uh, sacrificially into uh, the, the work of God. What we're going to see from Jesus' teachings today, that there were some men that were called religious leaders that fit within this illustration quite well. They had uh, plenty of wealth. They gave, sure, but were they giving sacrificially? One step further, there are entities and there are people that fit under the umbrella of the Christian church or Christendom that would fit well under this umbrella that fit the illustration we're going to see today as well. Just because we read it in the New Testament and it's in Jesus' time doesn't mean that it does not affect us some way. That's the beauty of the Word of God. The beauty of the Word of God, it hits every avenue of life, all avenues of life, every walks of life, and it hits us today, and it weaves all the way through human history, and it is very, very beneficial for us to understand the application just as well as it was back then and understand it today. The Word of God is all-encompassing of all human history. That is the beauty of the Scripture. Now last week Jesus was confronted by a scribe and he asked him a question concerning the two commandments or considering the commandments. Which is the greatest commandment? He asked Jesus. And we saw last week that his scribe was a genuine uh, seeker. He wanted to know. And no other time in the Gospels do we ever see the scribes commended for being a genuine seeker. They weren't trying to trip him up on this point. And the scribe was genuinely asking him a question. What is the greatest commandment? And to be honest, I think this scribe cast a little bit of a, of a relief upon the office of the scribe itself. Because at this point, they didn't look so hypocritical. Any other time we see the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and these uh, Herodians and so forth, they are seen as being hypocritical and so forth. So it at least casts a little bit of a of light upon their office. The scribe asked this with a genuine heart, what is the two, what is the greatest commandment? And he said this, in a nutshell, it is loving God and loving others. Loving God with all you have, with all your heart, mind, soul, everything you have, and because you love God with your whole being, you will love one another. 
Now Jesus asks also about the identity of David. And this is kind of going to be our background to springboard us into our sermon this morning. We'll notice over in Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 35, it says this, As Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that, the Christ, that Christ is the Son of David? And David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I will put your enemies under my feet. And David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The greatest throng heard, heard him gladly. This great crowd accepted what Jesus said. So maybe they were misunderstood about who the Messiah was. The Messiah, the one that Mark paints for us, is not a militant Messiah. But He is one that came to take our place. The best way I, I have come to realize and understand how the Pharisees, the scribes, and so forth, and even people in Jerusalem saw the Messiah was think of an illustration. The scribes and Pharisees are looking down for their Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah to come. And as they're looking down, they see the temple, the sacrificial system. They see the blood, the goats, the, the scapegoat. They see the, the high priest. They, they see this. And then on the other side, they see their Messiah. So, in order for them to get to their Messiah, they see, excuse me, the, the church or those that see the right Messiah will see the Levitical system. And so we see Christ on the other side. He stands in our place. What the scribes, the Pharisees, and these guys will see on the other side, they see the Messiah. But in the middle of this, they see Rome. So the difference is, Rome, the government, would be their militant Messiah for the scribes and Pharisees. For those who generally see the Messiah really was, they see the Levitical system and then they see Christ. So the Messiah, in a way, was misunderstood by the quote-unquote religious leaders. So Jesus asked this question, and he knows that there's a misunderstanding. They don't understand the fullness of what Christ came to do. And only in retrospect, looking back from the resurrection, will they really fully, genuinely understand in all the capacity what Christ had really done. He took our place. He took our place. Number one, we're going to look this morning at an arrogant agenda demonstrated. An arrogant agenda demonstrated. Starting with verse 38. And in his teachings, he said, Beware of the scribes, they who like to walk around in long robes and like greeting in the marketplaces, and have the best seat in the synagogue, and a place of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses for a pretense. They make long prayers, and they will receive the greatest condemnation. Now, in verse 38, Jesus used the scribes as an example. Imagine being used as an example of what not to do in history. Imagine there's no there's nobody aspiring to be little Hitlers anymore or Judases. There's no one aspiring to be a scribe or a Pharisee anymore. Imagine being used in Scripture as as something of what not to do. And now we see an example of of, of a genuine person in the past, and now we see it 
in reflection of the scribe here in verse 38 and used as an example of arrogance. This scribe now has gone from uh, a, a, an office of scribe of being one that genuinely seeks to now being one of arrogance. So these scribes were ones that had like the PhDs. They would be equivalent to a person that had acquired a PhD in say the Torah or the law or biblical studies. Teachers of the law. Now these he said to beware to make notice of them. Notice what they do. Notice how they speak and how they act in public. We are not exclusive, he might say. Jesus would say this really does uh, apply on down through the ages. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we might go through those occasions where we want people to notice us. To somehow think that we are holy because we say a, a good prayer. Or that we give to the offering plate as we are obligated to, one might say. But are we obligated or are we to be a sacrificial giver? Now Jesus here uses the imperative in the Greek, which simply just means to look, almost a command. Look, be aware of these false teachers. Watch what they are doing, he says. They walk around in the long robes, a flowing robe, when inside they are as dead men's bones. And this would be something known as a stall we might see here. And I begin to think what would be an equivalent to that today of, of somebody walking into the church trying to be noticed. I guess the best picture I could come out would be would be somebody in a real flashy suit uh, wanting to be seen as a, uh, a walking into public or any, uh, any other avenue of life. And this, on the other hand, would be a stall. This would kind of be something of what they would wear. They wanted people to know that they were a man of prayer. I've never met a prayer warrior that went around and said, I'm a prayer warrior. You always had somebody else that would affirm that for them. They never walked around and said, I'm a great preacher. You always had someone that would say, this guy can really, he can really expound on the text. Never had a person walk around, I'm a great pastor. You never had people to do that. This is exactly what they were doing. They were wearing all their witness, it seemed, on the outside. The long robes and they prayed long, you know, really long prayers. They wore such garments they wanted to be noticed in the streets for their piety, their righteousness, their holier-than-thou type attitude. They wanted people to know that they were a person who can get in touch with God. But, but were they? Were they really the ones who can get in touch with God? In verse 39, they took the most prestigious seats at the table of any feast they went to. And they walked right into the synagogue and they sat right on the front, right where the scrolls used to be. And they would sit right in front of that. They would go to a dinner party and sit. They would go right to the host and either sit on the right or on the left. And the host would have the head of the table. And I think in all of their arrogancy, they probably would, if they could, upseat the host and take their seat. That's the arrogancy that you might see in the office of the scribe and what Jesus is pointing out. Now I'm surprised that in their own arrogancy that they not only try to uproot the host but also try to uproot the law itself. And they did actually by adding unto the law. And I remember when me and Tracy used to clean church, we used to clean the church. We started just started going to this church back home, 
And we were, okay, how can we get involved? How can we, how can we begin ministering? What, what can we do? And so we signed up to clean the church. And what was it? Once a month, I think? Once a month we, we would clean the church. Something, something like that. And, you know, our daily, my, one of my daily things, you know, as far as cleaning the church, we'd go into the aisle and I would dust out the, the woodwork on it, make sure all the stuff was, all the trash was out of the pew. And a couple times I come across a Bible or two that were tucked away in your corner right here. So they're like tucked in. And I begin to think, you know, if their Bible is sitting here on the pew, are they reading it at home? How can they be reading their Bible at home if it is in the pew? And so I started moving their Bibles. And I started looking at the Bibles like, hey, they're trying to mark their territory too. They wanted the best seat. It made me wonder if a visitor was to come in and sit down, what would they say? So me and Tracy started moving their Bibles. It started being a little joke, but I think, I think it was a point well taken. As after a while, we've seen some, we see some change. But it made me think of this as well. If we have come to the place where we begin to claim our seats in the church, it's just, just a little side note. It's not really... It's just a practical thing we can look at. If we began in the church wondering and worrying about our prominence, where are we sitting at the first place in the line when we go eat our meals, if we want to have the best seats in the house and not to serve, if we start making dress codes for people to get in, they have to have a, a shirt and tie, a, a, a tie and suit on, and we began to do those things, we began to shape the church into more of a social club than it is a local assembly. We don't want a local uh, social club. We want a church that is a movement of God. And this is exactly what the scribes did. They were in a way, in their arrogancy, had reduced the law of God to just a social club type of quote-unquote religion of the day. The same ones go around look at how religious I am. They have no problems taking the food out of the widow's mouth. They have no problem rubbing the widow's poverty in the dirt. They have no problem with that at all. And Jesus marks this out in verse, verse 40. By some sleight of hand or by some deceit, they have swindled their way and they have taken what the widows have. That makes me, when I look at this, say they did not understand what it meant to love God and love others. They did not understand the commandments. Because you will not take food out of one that is struggling. All through the Old Testament, we see that God, He, he, he hated the mentality that is one that suppresses a people who cannot help themselves. The underdog. We saw this when Pharaoh had the Hebrew people under thumb and oppressed God. In the Old Testament, we see that he absolutely hates that. We don't oppress people, and that's exactly what they were doing. 
oppressing those who could not otherwise help themselves. And in their arrogancy, they did not care. They stood in prayer in the public and gave the best prayers, the longest prayers, as if they were more connected with God, but they were not more, any more connected with God than the rocks out there in the parking lot were connected. The arrogancy of the scribes was outstanding. And I remember reading a story about this uh, a worker who had came home and brought his boss home for dinner. Brought him, brought him in the front door and he introduced him to his family and the young boy, the worker's son, just stood there and was just kind of amazed at the man. He had heard his father's stories about him. Came in the door, introduced himself and, and as the conversation started to go on and on, the, the boy just kept staring at the man, the, the, the boss man. And finally, the, the boss man looked at him and says, Son... He said, why, why are you staring at me like that? Is, is there something wrong? Is there something wrong with me? And the, the young boy said this. He said, My father said that you are a self-made man. And so he, gleaming with arrogancy, he began to, you know, kind of lift himself up and very, very proud. Why, yes, son. I, I remember living in the streets of Chicago barren and in poverty and I built this company with my own hands yes I am a self-made man he said and the boy looked at him without missing a beat and he said well then why did you make yourself like that <laughs> he noticed the man's arrogancy his pride is it wrong to have pride in the things that we have worked for only wrong when that pride has been placed in ourselves and not in God. People spend most of the days on earth living to impress a world that really, quite frankly, just don't care. You might drive up in a brand new Lamborghini. It might say, oh yeah, nice car. But in reality, people really don't care what you have. And when they do care what you have, it's so that they can match you some way. Keeping up with the, with the Smiths or the Jones. They only care about what you have because, hey, they want to match you or beat you or exceed what you have. They don't really care in reality. Generally speaking, people don't really care if you show up and the nice, have the nicest house. Only to care when they want to exceed what you have. Even in the local body, we tend to put on the best appearance, the best suit, the best faces when we come in. I think God wants us to be honest with Him, him and with us. He wants us to be honest. We come in with the best appearance, like everything is okay. And really deep down, we might go be going through some hurting, or even, a, even some confusion, or maybe even some doubt, as far as our walk with Christ. In reality... I think what this is called, the very bottom line, this is called hypocrisy. An arrogancy and hypocrisy. And I think this is what Jesus said to those about those scribes. They stood in public, putting on a face, something they really were not. And he said, they will be judged greatly. He ends that discourse there, saying they will be judged greatly. 
greatly. Number two, there is an example of sacrificial giving. Now this is really where the rubber meets the road. I'm going to close on this point that this is an example of sacrificial giving. And who is this example? We'll start in verse 41. He sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people putting the money in in the offering box. Many rich people, they put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to, and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who contributed in the offering box. For, for they contributed out of the abundance. But she gives out of her poverty and has put in everything she has and all that she has to live on. Now, after Jesus has marked out the hypocrisy of the scribes, he's going to go back and sit down and watch this illustration happen. He had just started talking about the, the uh, arrogancy, the hypocrisy of the scribes. Now he's going to sit down across from the, the money box here and watch the illustration come to life. Now, Jesus sat across from the treasury box, which, which looks something like this. Might have a few more horns uh, coming out, and they would walk up and they would put what they had in that. And so Jesus was watching as people come and put their offerings in, in, into the offering box here. And here come the scribes. They, they come along and they made it known what they were putting in. They wanted their, their, their coins to jingle a little bit louder than the other folks. It might be the equivalent of somebody standing up. Of course, this is a dollar bill. And standing up in front of the church today and saying, I'm going to gladly give this hundred dollars here. I want you all to see it and put it in the offering plate. So Jesus later on would say, well, that's their reward. The Bible also tells us to not let the right hand know what the left hand is doing and vice versa. We put in with a cheerful heart. We want to, we want to put in uh, cheerfully and sacrificially. And so that's the point we're going to get to today. They were throwing it in the money box. They wanted to elicit a response. They want people to turn their head as the coins uh, jangled into the box itself. They wanted, to see how, they wanted people to see how much they gave and what they looked like and how they prayed. They wanted to have the appearance of being holy. This poor widow came along and she threw her coins in. Little two, two pennies. It, it would be the equivalent of a day's wages. Or what might be called one sixty-fourth of a denaro. Very small, very small amount. At least in monetary value. Now, in reality, this widow was far richer than the scribes would ever exceed to be. Even though they had all the money, this widow would be more rich than, than these scribes would be in their flashiness, in their sleight of hand, in their deceit, in their sharp tongue. Her money equaled one farthing. There's no telling what they give. He said that she gave out of her sacrifice and all she had, and they gave out of the abundance it would be as if someone gave $5,000 and they had a million dollars in the bank and to them that $5,000 would be like a nickel or five bucks. Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more into the box and more into the, the box itself for they all contribute out of their abundance but she gave out of her poverty and everything she put in and she had put everything that she has to live on in that box. And how many of us can say that we are giving sacrificially? That doesn't mean that we go to the bank and clean out our bank account and put it all in. That's not 
the point. There's a heart matter that takes place. It's not that we go clean out our bank account and put in. I think we have the mentality of giving all mixed up. I'm going to close on this because I think it's very important. We have mixed up tithes and offerings and giving it to the Lord's house. We have mixed it up with an obligation versus worship. Versus worship. Does the lights need to get paid? Yeah. Does the gas need to get paid? Yes. When we began to focus on giving as a worship to God, then as we worship God that way, we will benefit. We will be able to pay the bills. We will be able to make ends meet. When we turn, we we see God for who He is and for what He has done. He has sent His only darling Son to die for us, for one. When we see the attributes of God, that He is a loving God, it makes us want to worship God. It makes us want to do things for God. It makes us want to serve God. It turns our heart from being a heart that is a heart of obligation to give to a heart that is a cheerful giver. We have now become not an obligated heart of of giving, but we have become a cheerful giver. So, we move from seeing the attributes of God, seeing who He is, what He's done for us. We move to being a charitable or cheerful giver. And now from a cheerful giver, we move to being a sacrificial giver. It seems to go in a... An order. We see God for who He is, we become cheerful, and then we give sacrificially. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7 says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctant, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What I'm saying to you this morning is when we reflect on the, on the nature of God and what, who He is and what He has done, and we worship Him that way, even in our tithes and offerings, we will get to the place where not only we are a cheerful giver, but we are also a sacrificial giver as well. There are times when God will call us to give sacrificially. There will be times when there are needs that need to be met and God will call us to give sacrificially. Don't begrudgingly, do it grudgingly, but do so And we want to worship God. He only lets us borrow this little bit we have in the bank. He only lets us borrow this little bit we have in the checking account or the saving account. He just asks for a little bit in return to help His kingdom function in this world so the gospel can go out. The problem is this. If we are honest with ourselves, we think of giving in the offering plate as a chore or an obligation. And I think we have lost our focus. If we think of giving as worshiping God, then I think we begin to redirect the scribes, like many of us today, we want to see people, we want to know that we're giving. We want to know that we, we want people to know what we have done. And I would ask you and implore you this morning that we move out of that mentality and ask the Lord to do a work in our lives. And that's why I think the place of theology, the place of studying about God comes into place because you begin to reflect on who He is. And you begin to understand who He is and the depths of what He has done. And as you do so, reading the Bible. You come to the realization that we can worship God in all we do, even in our giving. Number one, there was an arrogant agenda demonstrated. We saw this in the scribes. They, they were just flashy. And number two, an example of a sacrificial giving. Going from the attributes of God to a, cheer, a cheerful, charitable giver 
to that of a sacrificial 